People want services, but they don't want to pay higher taxes for them. CFO Lois Scott shares her ideas for circumventing this problem. From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. Lois Scott is the CFO of the City of Chicago. In 2003, Ms. Scott co-founded Scott Ballas Strategies, which advised state and local governments on strategic and financial matters. In 1997, President Bill Clinton selected her to the White House to advise as a policy chief. Ms. Scott, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit, bit about what you do in your role as CFO of Chicago? Well, the role of CFO of Chicago is really to provide some strategic direction about the role of finances and to make sure that we keep our eye on the long-term financial uh, sustainability of our city. There's lots of specific financial functions that are required in, in running a government that include everything from as simple as collecting the revenues from uh, meters or from parking taxes, all the way actually to creating the overall um, financial platform and the policies by which we're governed. And really, I spend most of my time on the strategic issues, working with the mayor and the administration to really set the course of what the primary drivers should be as we go forward. What should those primary drivers be? Well, the big issues that we're confronting is the financial sustainability of the city to make sure that we're putting um, the city on a healthy track going forward. We come off of several generations of really disinvestment in infrastructure. So infrastructure is a major push for us. As people around Chicago are aware, we've done a major infrastructure initiative to really put 20,000 people to, to work, put $7 billion of capital into our community for job creation, for the infrastructure that's going to fuel the future economy. The next big area for us, of course, is uh, addressing our pension situation. Um, we as government entities have deficits in a number of areas. We have an operating deficit in terms of whether our taxes are sufficient to pay for our operating costs. We have an infrastructure deficit, but we also have a pension deficit, that the funding that has been provided for pensions has left the pension funds in a precarious situation. So we're very focused on the retirement security of tens of thousands of our Chicago uh, colleagues, and that their future is very much jeopardized by the absence of resources to, fund, to fully fund those pensions. So we find ourselves confronting a very complex issue about doing right by our employees and our retirees at the same time we're protecting the legitimate interest of our taxpayers. Uh, you, me- you mentioned infrastructure before. Um, Chicago, as we've learned in our, in our seminar today, is leading the way with in an infrastructure bank. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, the Chicago Infrastructure Trust is really the nation's first municipal infrastructure trust, or infrastructure bank, if you will that was created uh, in 2012 by the City Council with a vote of City Council to create this and to uh, advance some equity funding to the trust. The trust is governed by a five-member board of directors appointed by the mayor and confirmed by the City Council. That is a nonprofit organization. It is not an agency of government. It's an independent entity with a long-term view to our future. That trust has the opportunity to identify capital projects and find funding for those capital projects um, in a way that we as city officials can't. Um, So instead of looking just at tax-exempt finance, it looks at the entire universe of taxable investors, uh, philanthropic investors, banks, uh, sovereign wealth funds, independent people, and tries to identify ways of optimizing the finances as opposed to just putting all the risk on our taxpayers and putting all of our eggs into the tax-exempt basket. You mentioned that there's certain things that this bank can do that the the government, for for whatever reason, can't get at, certain certain problems that government can't solve. 
Could you, could you elaborate more about that? Well, one area that's really important about creating anything for the Infrastructure Trust is really giving tax, taxpayers and our citizens a stake in the future of our city. So <clears throat> with the trust, at every individual, individual project that comes to the trust will be separately financed against a revenue stream that's identified either generated by the project or new sources of revenues. And importantly, the trust itself can take an equity interest in those projects. So that it, so if, the, if the project outperforms expectations, it's not the private sector partners or, the, or, or other independent people that benefit from it, but our taxpayers are at the table and can win from that as well. So that's one area that the trust can do that we don't have that ability today. The other major area <coughs> is actually doing a risk assessment and um, better managing and better allocating the risk to those best able to absorb that risk. Today, if we want to do a new library, a new transit line, what we do is we increase the revenues of people like you and I to, that use those systems or increase property taxes and then issue taxes and bonds against it. It seems like a low cost of financing. But if there is a cost overrun for the library, if the technology no longer works, we as taxpayers are on the hook for higher revenues to pay more into it without really any accountability for the results that we had for the first round. So the trust introduces a risk allocation in a way that's much more sophisticated than what we do every day by allocating all those risks to our taxpayers. You, you obviously just mentioned uh, kind of sharing and spreading risk. For people who don't have a background in economics or risk analysis, can you talk more about what that means? So in any, any capital project, any infrastructure project, there's a lot of risks that go into it. Let's, let's take uh, building a new transit line. Um, there's a lot of technology involved in building a tech, a, 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 a transit line. There's also a lot of financial risks involved. What if there are cost overruns? What if you encounter um, environmental issues that remediation needs to be done in advance of that? Those technology risks, those financial risks are very real and very expensive. And so historically we just absorb those as taxpayers and really haven't thought maybe the private sector has encountered this around the world. We the city of Chicago only know our universe of projects, but if you are a developer project that might have worked in the Middle East, in Africa, in South America, you might have a broader universe and have seen more technologies that might be able to defray. So in that situation, perhaps that technology entity is better able to take that risk. I'll give you a really relevant example, and that's the MTA of New York. Most people have ridden the New York subway or are familiar with the New mm -hmm. York subway. Um, that was financed and built by private parties. It was not a publicly owned asset. And the reason for that was back in the turn of the century, 19, in the early 1900s. The, the other did, century. The other century. Other century. <laughs> Thank you. M my century. <laughs> um, people did not know what the technology was going to be about something very new and different called electricity. They didn't know whether it was going to be direct current or alternating current that would be the standard in, in America or that would run transit systems. So private entities stepped up and they were willing to accept that technology risk in ways the government wasn't able to do. So the private sector owned and operated the New York City subway system in its early days. Actually for, for decades it owned and operated it that way until the public sector decided it wanted to create it as a public utility for the benefit of citizens. So in that case you see how the private sector took a technology risk and it was allocated to people who were able to understand it and willing to take that bet in ways that perhaps the government would have felt was a very risky thing to do back 120 years ago. So if, if we were able to devise such a system 110 years ago or so, what happened in between then and now where our infrastructure started to fall apart? Well, I think what happened was you really saw the federal government disinvesting in infrastructure. Um, you know, it used to be that a substantial port, portion of, of roads, of transit lines, of any kind of, of uh, infrastructure in America was really uh, facilitated by federal government. 
the, the Federal Highway Act, for example, after World War II, the Federal Highway c was created and put a lot of money into our infrastructure. Over time, the amount of funding for capital by the federal government has become a shrinking portion. And in its place, we as state and local governments had had to find other streams. And so we levered, re leveraged up our communities against our growing tax bases. Well, what happened in the past maybe five to 10 years is those tax bases were suffering, either from the financial crash in 2001-2 after the dot-com burst or most recently after the Great Recession. So as we leveraged up our communities and then the economic crisis happened, we, we, our gaps for infrastructure became more and more visible. Maybe not larger, but much more visible to all of us. And so we were seeking different ways of funding those, and so we reached out for new ideas, quote unquote new ideas, looking back at where, where are pockets of money, where are people willing to take risks that maybe we as government officials are no longer able to take or shouldn't be in the business of taking. And so with that was born some new ways of looking at things. I think we're still in a very much the nascent phase of that. Uh, around the world, Canada, the European countries, South, South, certainly South America and Asia, um, they don't have the, the same history of taxes and, finance, taxes and finance and national funding. Certainly in some countries don't have national funding. They do it more, more regionally. Um, so they were looking for other models and we're trying to learn and catch up from them about how infrastructure's been financed around the world. You, you mentioned you know, <coughs> leveraging issues and trying to raise new sources of revenue. Obviously, raising revenue from taxpayers in general is unpopular, but the city, the city of Chicago, some of their new ideas have still been unpopular. I mean, you, you know where I'm going to go with this. For people who, who say that selling parking meters is, is unfair, what, what, do you, what are the merits of doing so? Obviously, there, there are reasons for doing so, um, but maybe they're not so obvious to, 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 to individuals. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point, and I think it gets to something that's really not about the, the, the technique mm -hmm. of financing, but what you do with the proceeds. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the primary issues that we as a community need to work through um, is whether the, some of the transactions that were done, certainly before I was in this position, mm -hmm. were done for the right reasons and had the, the right long-term benefits for our taxpayers. Certainly I would not support um, transactions that take long-term assets and put that into current year operations, mm -hmm. and unfortunately that has been some of the history. But in those situations where we are legitimately trying to expand the universe, transfer risk, um, benefit from the resources and the expertise of other parts of our world, I think those are really um, issues that we as taxpayers should expect. And I think people should say to me as a CFO, what, other, what else have you done? What else have you done other than trying to raise my taxes? What other ideas have you brought to the table to produce revenues, to try new techniques that protect the taxpayers? We're, we've gotten too accustomed the taxpayer being the ultimate um, the ultimate guarantor of all this. All this well, may, may I ask you that question? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, actually, in the city of Chicago, we launched an interesting initiative just a couple weeks ago, which will be considered by um, our city council on December 12th. And that is, um, as part of our budget introduction in 2012, municipal marketing was identified as an area that governments always talk about marketing. We should be marketing and bringing in revenues related to that, whether it's selling ad space on our buildings, et cetera. So the City Council of Chicago said... Oh, so pri private marketing? Correct. Marketing of our assets okay. to advertisers okay. to, to generate a revenue. So whether it's sponsorships, naming rights, mm -hmm. um, ad space, et cetera. So uh, we convened a 10-department um, group around City Hall. I met in the past year, a week, at least weekly, for the last 52 weeks. We also had an independent group of eight people come together to advise us on that. And what we determined was that we didn't want to be adding a lot of clutter to our street and worrying about the visual integrity of our, of our city and the architectural history of our city. So instead, we outlined uh, a, a program to create uh, a sh the Chicago Digital Network. 
which will be a network of 34 locations around the expressways only of Chicago, that will be a new advertising channel. It will be billboards in those locations, and the revenues from those billboards will go 50% to the city off the top, 50% of the gross to us, and the remaining to our, our partner. And that's one way of generating a new revenue stream in ways that we haven't. I think it's, it's, it's just very telling to take a look at the, at the underlying economics. So we as a city have 13, approximately 1,300 billboards in place. And for that, in regulatory fees, all the revenues we get from that in a year is about a million dollars. Combined? Combined. Okay. Combined. One million dollars for 1,300 billboards in an area that's very hard to regulate. So we as taxpayers have is, is, really... Is, is, may I interrupt? Is that yeah. normal? I think... <clears throat> I think that's about normal for okay. governments. Governments aren't in the business of really getting involved in, the, in, in, in businesses. So we don't actually get to tap into revenues. We only get the cost of regulating mm -hmm. that. And that doesn't really reflect the true cost in our community of that visual element. <clears throat> so with the Chicago Digital Network that we outlined, that will give us a guaranteed revenue stream next year of $15 million from 34 sites. So I think that's a, an area where we're expanding, we're trying new things. We're going to be bringing that to City Council for deliberation to see uh, whether there's really the, the fortitude to, when you say don't cut services, mm -hmm. don't increase taxes, find a new way, we found a new way, and we'll be bringing that to City Council for deliberation to see if that's a way that they want to proceed. Do you foresee any potential uh, unintended consequences for, the, for this new strategy? Obviously, obviously there's cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Some, there's going to be effect somewhere. What, 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 what do you think that might be? I think that identifying new uh, revenue streams um, is, is a path that we all need to really focus on and really making sure that we get full value for our taxpayers. Um, there's unintended consequences to whatever you do, mm -hmm. especially failure to act. Mm -hmm. Because right now the unintended consequence of failing, failing to act is that it puts too much pressure on our taxes and it puts too much pressure on the businesses that are here because what we want to do is grow the economy. And by growing the economy and creating jobs, will we'll reduce the burden on all of us and create the opportunity to really build the 21st century infrastructure that we need. So the unintended consequences of, of doing nothing is greater than the unintended consequences of trying new things in this economy. On a different note, uh, I see in your bio that you're one of the founders of the Women in Public Finance. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about that? I'm sure it's something sure. that's very important to you. Well, I began my career about 30 years ago. and. Um, I had finished uh, graduate school and moved to Chicago and was working at First Chicago. And I was um, raised by a country doctor, and my mother ran our town. So I didn't have a lot of exposure to the business world. So when I finished business school, I wasn't sure what it all was about. And I ended up working in the public finance group at First Chicago. <clears throat> and this was about 30 years ago. And it was a time when there weren't a whole lot of people who looked like me around. And I worked extremely hard and had to prove myself in ways I'm not sure everybody else felt that they needed to do. But I thought it was a very isolating experience, and I didn't want that to be my legacy of this career. So uh, a group of friends, four of us in the industry, got together. Uh, we never had a meeting, and we said we could really use an event. So we gave birth to the Women in Public Finance uh, Conference, and every year about 500 people from around the country, men and women, fly into Chicago for an annual conference. And we've had speakers like Madeleine Albright and really world-class speakers bring, to, bring this community together and really talk about um, the industry, the changes in the industry, provide an opportunity just to, to at least feel like you're part of a community. And that really uh, has radically changed how the Chicago public finance community came together over time. It's really one of the most cohesive communities in Chicago, the bankers, the attorneys that all work with the government sector. And it's really helped improve the quality of civic life here. So I'm very, very proud of that. Well, Ms. Scott, thank you for joining us. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast is produced and edited by Claire O'Hanlon, David Levine, and Lindsay Hearn. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. Special thanks this week to Paul Worthington. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org and on iTunes, or email us at media at chicagopolicyreview.org. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.